Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast. Some people call us an oddcast. For those who value real, different dialogues about business and life. And on this episode, it's different, all right. We continue our run of legendary authors. Our guest for this episode has written four New York Times bestsellers, three of which hit number one. For quite a while, and maybe even today, he's America's favorite bad boy, turned entrepreneur, and uh, philosopher king. Tucker Max is here. Tucker uh, had such an impact on our culture that he's only one, he's the fourth writer, along with, get your brain around this list here, Malcolm Gladwell, Benet Brown, and Michael Lewis to have three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list all at the same time. And to top it all off, Time Magazine called Tucker one of the hundred most influential people in the world. On this episode, we have, dare I say it, a fantastic conversation about the coronavirus. Uh, he tells us what he and his family are doing to hunker down and try and stay healthy. The idea of radical generosity in his business that he and his company, uh, Scribe, are doing to kind of lead and uh, be forward on their skis during this uh, challenging time. And most of all, why Tucker thinks that the coronavirus is going to lead to a new, and I quote, golden age. And at the very start of the conversation, you'll hear me laughing uh, as he's telling a story about how a marketing stunt early in his career as a uh, author badly backfired in his face. Go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com to check out the show notes, learn more about Tucker, his books, and his company, Scribe. Now, Leading in uncertain times requires keeping your eyes on the road and your hands on the wheel. And today, more than ever, you need a full picture of your business. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is number one in cloud ERP. It is the platform for business that includes incredibly important things like finance, inventory, HR, customer data, and a lot more. NetSuite is everything you need to gain the visibility and control that you got to have, particularly at times like this. NetSuite provides you with the right information to make moment-by-moment -moment decisions, information on critical things like uh, orders, inventory, cash flow, cash position, accounts receivable, and a lot more. All of that has made NetSuite number one in cloud finance and ERP. And as a matter of fact, NetSuite is trusted by over 19,000 organizations around the world. Visit netsuite.com slash different today. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up your free product tour, as well as a free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits. That's netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite, business grows here. Now, big problems require big data. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. And that's because Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D to E as in data to everything to learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D, the number two E. Now, hey ho, let's go.
it's funny. Like, uh, there's a great saying. I forget who said it. That men make fun of each other to let them know they love each other, whereas women say nice things about each other, but usually don't mean it, right? And so, like, uh, <laughs> like uh, I think a part of it is like we're just in a certain societal wave that's a very progressive, social justice warrior, and driven by a certain extreme toxic brand of, I don't want to even want to say feminist, but a certain type of person who like has no sense of humor, which if you look, it's not just a left thing. Like I grew up, I'm sure you did too. In America, it used to be the conservatives, the fundamentalists were the humorless assholes that wanted to shut everyone down. And it was weird, man. It was like overnight it shifted and it became the social justice warriors. I swear to God, it's the exact same people. They have just shifted their beliefs from, you know, Jesus is Lord, uh, no one should have sex, to trans people or whatever are Lord, and no one should have sex, and no one's allowed to laugh. And it's like, I, I, they are the exact same people. It's just the beliefs are, are like, they're worshiping a different God. Well, you know, look, if, you, if, you, if you're so right for so long, sooner or later you turn left, right? <laughs> sooner or later you're facing the other direction if you keep going right. People who are 100% certain about their beliefs are uh, humorless because they think, well, there's no way I can be wrong. What are we joking about, right? But the rest of us who live in reality understand we don't know shit. Even the stuff we know, we don't really know. And so humor is a way of dealing with the pain. You understand the emotional scale, humor is right next to grief, right? If you want to see proof of this, watch um, I forget the name of the documentary, but there's a documentary where Jaguar is hunting monkeys, a troop of, I think it's like capuchin monkeys, and it catches one, right? And like, you know, kills it. The rest of the troop runs up the trees. Do you know what they start doing? They start laughing, right? Because laughter is next to grief in terms of how emotions are processed, right? And so like the sadness of suffering is the core part of life and the way you deal with it. One of the ways is to laugh about it. People are humorless. Don't get that. Well, this this notion of gallows humor, right? And sometimes, to your point, the pain is so unbelievable. You sort of have to find a way to laugh to break it, because otherwise, you're gonna completely go nuts. Go if you want to see the best gallows humor. Go uh, search nurse Instagram. Like like seriously, like nurses. There's like nurse Instagram uh, uh, channels. They're brutal, man. There's like all these memes about like how like they go home and like sip wine and they look like, you know, their death after they spend all day trying to save people. I mean, like it's all funny, but it is like the most brutal gallows humor I've ever heard, man. My wife's a nurse practitioner and this is like a whole separate level, dude. Nurse uh, Instagram, I'm telling you. I'll check it out. I I relate to that as a kid, uh, Tucker, when I was just 16, 17 years old, I got a job as an orderly in a hospital. And, you know, one of the things you do as an orderly is when a patient dies on the floor, you and the nurse go and you wash the body and you weigh the body and you do all this stuff and you take it down to the morgue and you put it in the fridge and the whole thing. And, you know, when you're 16, 17 years old, you know, you're, you, this is a heavy thing to be doing, right? And uh, I had shifts where it happened more than, you know, twice on one shift. And so when you're in those situations, yeah, it's heavy and it may seem inappropriate, 
Um, but somebody making a joke about something is going to, is going to, you know, alleviate some, some real, uh, I don't know that when the, you know, when the air is thick and heavy. Yeah, no, hundred percent. There's no doubt. Humor is the way that people connect. Humor is the way that we process. Humor is the way we grieve. It's one of my, it's one of the number one things I look for interviewing people for my company. If they can't take a joke or they don't, they don't have a sense of humor. That's, it's a number one red flag for people who are rigid, people who aren't thinkers, People who like, I don't. Oh, but Tucker, you're creating a hostile work environment for me, man. Not, I haven't hired you. So no, <laughs> no, no, not until you're hired. Like, I'm, I'm a big believer in like not being like a sexist asshole at work. I'm all on board on that. It's a whole different thing to like be like, like, oh, you're not allowed to tell jokes or whatever. And of course, what the jokes are matter. Yes, the devil's in the details. But people who are humorless, and they all say, like, I mean, do I used to listen? I sold millions of comedy books. I would say there are at least anywhere from 20 to 30% of people have no sense of humor. No one believes they have no sense of humor. Everyone thinks they do. But I would say anywhere from a quarter to a third of people have no sense of humor at all and they don't realize it. So everything to them that everyone else is laughing at, they're like, oh, that's not funny. And then you ask them, well, what do you think is funny? And either they can't come up with something. Or it's like something just awful. Something that's just not funny at all. Oh, I like, I don't know, hee-haw. Or that shit, that's even funny. Like, I, like they, what they'll say is something so preposterous. Or they'll pick something like that they know is socially acceptable. And uh, I like Monty Python. Okay, come on. Like, yeah, yeah, you can like Monty Python. It's funny. But like, if that's your only thing, then you don't, you don't have a sense of humor. You're just saying stuff that's socially acceptable. Well, I hope, you know, we have this explosion and I, I credit in, in a large part Netflix for it. We have this explosion in stand-up comedy now. And I've always loved comedy. I have a stepbrother who's a professional comedian and owns uh, the Comedy Nest, the only English language comedy club in uh, in Montreal, Canada. And I've always loved stand-ups. And so I'm, I'm Maybe maybe this this explosion in stand up comedy. Well, you think there's twenty to thirty percent of us who don't have a sense of humor? Oh yeah, at least. No, but you know what's crazy though, man? Stand up comedy is like in a real trouble because like cancel culture and all that stuff. Although I think the pendulum started to swing the other way. But like, I mean, dude, like you saw the shit Dave Chappelle took for like that that Netflix special he did. Like his uh, on on Rotten Tomatoes, the the critic rating was like twenty percent, and the audience rating was ninety nine. And Dave Chappelle just went in on cancel culture and social justice warriors. Basically, all the humorless left is who he went in on, right? And I mean, like, he, and he's Dave Chappelle, so he can, like, take it, right? But how many comedians are Dave Chappelle? Like, there's him, there's Rogan, there's maybe five comedians who can speak truth and not see their career tank. Wow, you still think, you still think it's only that level? Mm-hmm. I mean, what about, you know, there's a lot of incredible newer uh, female comedians that that I absolutely adore, you know, like uh, Liza Schlesinger and Whitney Cummings and um, Whitney, oh, Cummings oh my God, not new. Whitney Cummings had a show on NBC 10 years ago. Newer. OK, new to me, dude. <laughs> I'm not a pop culture <laughs> guy, but like, uh, you know, Ali Wong, she's newer. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I don't know who the newest of the new is, but there's a there's a class of, of women comedians that have risen up in the last plus or minus decade who are really great and really yeah. funny. And, you know, maybe it started this this new wave started maybe with Sarah Silverman. I don't know. You tell me. 
Yeah, Chelsea Handler, that group. Yeah, absolutely. No, they're funny. Like, they, they, just because there's a bunch of female comedians who kind of came up the last decade who were really funny, it doesn't have anything to do with the way that uh, male comedians are treated. Like, I think they're kind of different things, you know? Maybe I'm wrong, man. I'm not a comedian. I'm wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> so I don't know, man. But like, uh, um, I, you can just see right now, like my stuff, right? Um, it, if I came up now, I'd be a different person. So I, it doesn't make sense for anyone to take someone from a different era or a thing from a different era and transpose it to another era. It's never an apples to apples comparison, right? Because my stuff started, you know, 20, 15, 15 years ago. But like that stuff now, would uh like it's pretty innocuous a dude goes out drinks a lot tries to pick up women fails most of the time sometimes successful makes a fool of himself that's pretty much it people would lose their fucking mind they lost their mind it's funny when it came out people lost their mind it was mostly the fundamentalists and conservatives that i had pushback from not from the social justice warrior left because it didn't really exist as a powerful faction then it was too small and marginalized now it's like a big deal Right. And so now the shit that like, but there were some women's groups that didn't exactly love you in the beginning. Yeah. But you know that like, I literally created that, right? Like that draw, that trauma. No, you did not. Yeah. Uh, so, so here's the whole story. Like, like there was no one who had any problem with any of my stuff. And so when my movie was coming out, we realized, okay, I don't have enough. We don't have enough attention. So let, how do we generate some? And so uh, me and my assistant at the time, or he wasn't my assistant anymore, but uh, uh, Ryan Holiday, who now like has his own books and is doing all his own stuff. He used to be my assistant. He was now working for American Apparel at the time. And he was still helping me. And so we're like, how do we generate a bunch of attention? And so I was like, look, let's go. I know there's all these ridiculous, ra- at the time they were called radical feminists, right? There's these ridiculous, insane radical feminist leftist groups on all these colleges, right? And they have these ridiculous notions that are so far out of the mainstream. Let's, let's take my stuff. Let's like take it out of context. Let's make it all like sound even worse than it is. Like there's, there's bad enough, but like, let's make it just really out of context and, and just sound like, I'm an actual literal rapist and like send it to them and then they'll come protest and we'll get the news to cover the protest. And so like all of that I created, dude, like, like Ryan and I drove, we drummed all of that up and it worked. It got a ton of attention. The problem was I thought I could control it. I thought I could control the narrative. I was totally wrong. What I was doing. I kicked the hornet's nest at the very beginning of the social justice warrior movement. And so like I became publicly associated with being a misogynist (laughs) and all this shit, even though like my events, dude, there would be women protesting and men too. Like it was like the, the male feminists, like those creepy dudes. It, they would be protesting events that were 50 percent women They're just trying to meet women by becoming male feminists right, no, seriously. They would be protesting events that were 50 percent women and of course the news didn't report on that and we didn't push that because we were just trying to get the attention and then i couldn't control the narrative after it got out and then everyone's like oh i heard of that guy so, <laughs> women hate him and it's like no that's not the truth at all but i'm the one who stepped i, I, I didn't even step in the shit i Filled up a truck with shit, put it on my front lawn, and dumped it over. 
dude. So wait a minute. And, and you know, I, I've, I fucking, I think you're fantastic, but I just want to make sure I understand. So you and Ryan thought it'd be a great idea to walk up to a hornet's nest called, you know, uh, extreme feminists or extreme female somethings. I don't know what, and just poke them. It, it was, this was the social justice wars before they had a name. Right. And you just thought you could poke that hornet's nest with all your, I hope they serve beer in hell bullshit that, you know, listen, when I, a buddy of mine started reading that book, we, I remember this, we were going on a trip and he goes, you read some of this. And I started reading it. And I went, holy fuck, this guy wrote this down and he wrote it this way. So you just thought that you could poke that hornet's nest and control the narrative. <laughs> I did. I did. I a hundred percent did, which should tell you how much of a dumbass I was. I just knocked over the camera. I was, was going to say, table, is, that so. our, is that our internet connection, or did you you laughing so hard? No, it's just the camera. It's just I knocked the fucking camera over. <laughs> oh, dude! And then what happened? Oh, dude! From there, it was a shitstorm. Like it, it totally. You became became one of the most. Uh, I don't know. You were America's favorite bad boy. Would that be a polite way of putting it? This, you got to remember, this is 2009, right? And so this is way before any of cancel culture, any of the social justice, social justice warrior, any of that. That group was just starting to get a critical mass, right? And I was like, there was no more enemies in the world, man. The Soviet Union had fallen. Like, uh, you know, uh, uh, this was 10 years after 2001. We'd beaten the terrorists. So like, there were no enemies, right? And so like, I voluntarily made myself an enemy of a vocal uh, group just to get attention for me, not thinking that anyone would take them seriously because their ideas are stupid. And like, as we're seeing now, what happens when they become part of culture? It's like, oh shit, this is not right. Like, but like I was the, and I did it, I do totally on purpose, totally knowing it would kick up a hornet's nest. But yes, like an idiot, I thought I could control it. I thought people would (laughs) care about facts. Which is like, what is wrong with me? Like, that's, come on. No one immediately I don't know if anybody that. ever cared about facts, but we certainly seem to be uh, living in a fact-challenged uh, situation. You know, you know, to get back to COVID-19 for a second, I mean, there doesn't seem to be agreement about a lot of the facts. Like, what the fuck? A lot of people are freaked out, at least in part, because we hear this, we hear that, we hear take a sauna, do, stand on your head, fart quarters. I mean, we don't, we're hearing a lot of things. Fart quarters. <laughs> yeah, dude. No, I know. I'm with you, man. No one's ever accused me of being smart. Man. I was smart enough to call, I was uh, smart enough to kick the hornet's nest, was not smart enough to realize what would happen after I kicked it. <laughs> the full extent you know, like I just, I didn't literally, the, the obvious thing, it's like, oh, dude, you're going to be associated with a lot of bad ideas. It's like, no, I just want to, I want to get the ideas out there. I want to get my name out there. Here's the way to do it. We should cancel the Christopher Lockhead protest uh, that we have uh, scheduled for downtown San Francisco next week. I would. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the, the Christopher <laughs> Lockhead, I'm going to go lick all the door handles protests or something. Yeah. That, that would be. Oh God. Yeah. Speaking of that, I saw one of these, I forget her name, and even if I remembered it, I wouldn't repeat it. But, uh, you know, this this word influencers is, is t- to use it ridiculous, another ridiculous word next to it is a trigger word for me. <laughs> because I think social media influencers should all be 
taken out and at least had a good talking to. Let me put it that way. So anyway, there's this uh, young 20 year old blonde, and I'll just say it, it may be inappropriate, but you know, kind of a bimbo type influencer who took a video of herself licking the toilet seat in an airplane. Oh my God. Yeah, I called it like the coronavirus challenge. She's challenging people to do like her and lick the toilet seat on a plane. Well, hold on. What does putting poop and piss in your mouth have to do with coronavirus? I don't know. It, it seems like a bad idea, coronavirus or not. I'm not doing it. I mean, that's not a challenge. Yeah, she should have called me ahead of time. I could have told her how this is, good. This is not going to turn out well for her. For the rest of her life, she's going to be the toilet licker. <laughs> Actually, you know what? You could probably spin up a very big business like 1-800-TUCKER-MAX. Before you do something that you think might be stupid, call this number, ask Tucker if you should do it, and Tucker will tell you what he thinks. Uh, it's like 250 bucks a call. You get five minutes. Tell me your dumbass idea, and I'll tell you if, how it's going to work out for you. Yeah. That would, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could probably pre-record three different answers and say, you know, press one if you want me to agree with you. Press two if you want me to challenge the idea, but let you make the decision. Press three if you want me to tell you what to do. <laughs> it's like it's like this dude. What Do you see that New York, New York Times had the article about this dude who drove around to all the places in southern Kentucky and northern Tennessee, bought all of the uh, hand sanitizer and toilet paper and tried to bootleg or try to sell it, resell it on Amazon. Amazon shut his account down. And so he's sitting there with like $10,000 worth of this stuff. So that's bad enough. But then the dude like says, yeah, New York Times, come on down and take pictures of me and use my name in a story. It's like, dude, like at least I had an upside to me getting this attention, right? What the fuck is his upside? He can't even sell this shit. Like, what is your upside? You are now the like, like you are now the poster child for uh, for uh, like like a parasitic uh, behavior in a crisis. What the fuck? Yeah, and you dumb fuck. For the rest of your life, when somebody googles you, that's the first thing that's going to come up. Everything. <laughs> and he was talking about in the article how you know he thought this move would really be a financial boom to his 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 family and all this stuff. And it's like, dude, you're trying to profit on death and misery. Right. And what it made me feel great about is the fact that Amazon and eBay just immediately shut them down. Like, we're not doing that. Bam. Exactly. Listen, I'm all for raising prices in an emergency to help, you know, be like to incentivize to the market. Like, hey, we need more Purell. So all you people who can kind of make Purell, but don't right now, it's real expensive. Go make it. Like, that makes sense. Raising prices in a crisis to signal to the market where to allocate resources. That's different than being a parasitic asshole who goes and buys other shit in stores to resell it. That's a whole different thing. That's just being a fucker. Like, that's the worst. Yeah, for sure. But also, maybe let me push on you a little bit on this one. I, I think maybe with this situation, it's different than a normal situation. We might be getting set up here for a very long time. And so... I don't know. I think companies who look to do things uh, to make extra money on this need to think twice. No, no, I 100% agree. That's a different thing, though. Being smart about your corporate messaging and communication strategy is a different thing. I'm just talking about the way market mechanisms work. 
versus like, I'll give you a really good example of what we're doing, right? So, so my company, like we help people write, publish and market books, right? And so our prices start at 10,000 and go up to a hundred plus. And what we have is like a luxury good. It's definitely like the sort of thing you can put off. Like a lot of people need to write a book. No one like is like, oh God, like I need to, like I've got to do it right now. You know, like you have to have a surgical mask when you go to Wuhan. <laughs> you don't have to have a book, right? Maybe if you put, if you open the book up and put it on your face and then took some gorilla tape and <laughs> taped it to your head, you could have like a book face mask. <sighs> <laughs> hey, and the other thing that a book is good for, why buy toilet paper if you have books? You got books. That library behind you there, that's what? That's several years of, a of, of toilet, toilet paper. paper. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously. But but I digress. You were, ta- <laughs> you were talking about your business. Sorry, Tucker. No, so I'm making a business example. So anyway, so the point is, like the most tone deaf shit we could do right now would be try and sell someone. Right. Like even people who've like already expressed interest, if we follow up, be like, hey, now's a great time to write your book because a lot of people are sick. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Right. That would be good. No one's spending 35 grand right now on this. Even if they want to, they're waiting a few weeks. Okay, cool. Get it. So here's what we're going to do instead. Because everyone's stuck at home for the next two weeks and everyone actually wants to write a book. And a bunch of people, because like they don't know how to work from home, aren't going to be doing their actual work. So they're going to be sitting at home dicking around. So I am going to, starting Thursday, all day Thursday, all day Friday, I'm going to teach people for free exactly how to use our process to write a book. And I mean exactly what we do with our clients, everything, like all of our templates, like everything. Like the, the course that you would pay tens of thousands of dollars to come to Austin to go through, we're going to give to people for free. You know, we're not going to give any of the backend services, obviously. All the info we're going to do free. Then we're going to record the whole thing. We're going to put it online and then we're going to redo it next Thursday and Friday, do it better so people can come back. Right. And so like, that's a perfect example of like, we could try and be idiots and assholes. Instead, we're going to be like, Hey, what's the cool thing to do here? What's the thing that could actually help a lot of people, right? Oh, people have time. Go write your book. I mean, fuck Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the uh, lockdown for the bubonic plague. I'm not Shakespeare, but I can do something, you know, so can you. And so like, that's a perfect example of the right way to do it. I, I love what you're talking about, Tucker. And, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, so I'm working on what for me will be my third book and what for my co-author or one of my two co-authors, Eddie Yoon, uh, will be his second book. And we have a whole chapter in there on radical generosity that legendary companies we're doing. We're having the, the narrative is all around companies that design and dominate categories but that today to design and dominate a uh, category that you're creating, one of the uh, strategic approaches that a lot of category queen, category king businesses use is radical generosity. They give some massive percentage of their shit away in one form or another. And, you know, they charge for 10% and they give away nine. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of being overly dramatic, but this notion of companies that you can't have a company anymore that doesn't have some kind of a do good mission and that doesn't give some meaningful amount of IP or something away as a, as a way of making a contribution. And of course, look, I endearing themselves to prospects and customers. A hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent with you. Like, because like, and most people, here's the thing, man, is that like, 
Two, twofold. A bunch of a bunch of companies sell courses on how to write a book for the thousands of dollars. We're about to create something that is literally better than them. Give it away for free and keep it up forever. So, like, we're gonna put some competitors out of business, which I'm happy for because I think it's bullshit to sell that information. I think everyone should have access to that for free. Services are a different thing. Like, selling time is a different thing, but the information should be free. But then the other side of it is like, why the hell did you even get in the business? Like, I like money. But I didn't get in this business to make money. I got in this business because I love books and I think they're really important to people. And I love it when people uh, achieve their dream and share their knowledge and wisdom with the world and write their book. And so it's like, yeah, this is like a perfect opportunity to actually fulfill the real purpose of the company, which is to help everyone on earth write a book. Like, now, like It's like you get the call. How do you, do you sit at home or do you answer it? You know, we just got the call, you know, like, like, uh, uh, it's going to be other people's job to find the vaccine for coronavirus and to do the medical stuff. I'm not in the medical field, right? But most people aren't going to be affected by this. So what, what, like I got the call to share the thing I'm great at, you know? And so am I going to share it or am I going to try and charge for it? Making money is fine. Sharing it. I just, I feel like it's almost like how I couldn't look myself in the mirror if, if I didn't do this, you know what I'm saying? It's like, why else would I be doing this? Like, if I just want to make money, just go be an asshole on wall street. It's so funny you bring this up because I've been asking myself this question for the better part of two weeks. You know, if I was legendary and I was me, what would I do? And, and, uh, I'm definitely me. If I was me, what would I do? (laughs) Well, the reason I've always loved that question, you know, everybody's an expert on other people. Yeah. Right. So, so if you say to me, Hey, Lockhead, you know, tell me three things that, you know, I I could improve. I I could probably make up a couple that are probably, you know, plus or minus not bad, right? For you to think about. And if I ask you the same question, even though we're getting to be friends and get to know each other, you would say to me, hey, well, you know, maybe you could think. So everybody's an expert on everyone else. And so what I like about the, if I was smart and I was me, or if I was legendary and I was me, it sort of forces that third person perspective on your own self, right? And so, yeah, for the last couple of weeks, certainly last week and a half or so, I sort of thought, well, if I was legendary and I was me, what would I do? And, you know, one of the things that came to mind is, you know, I would make some charitable contributions and, and so trying to do that. But then I thought I had the same sort of thought you had around what you do. I thought, well, hey, Lockhead, you're, you're a marketing guy, right? Uh, you've been through some crises as a p- public company CMO, right? You've even written about it and done a little part. Maybe you would start like pushing that shit out and giving away as much of what you know about how to lead with marketing in a crisis. And so I had this sort of same thought pattern. And so, you know, we, um, we've dropped our first episode already and we'll be dropping more and we'll be writing some stuff and I'm going to try and collaborate with some friends. And, you know, if this thing's going to be an elongated thing, then why not at least be somebody who's contributing to thoughts, ideas, approaches for how companies can navigate, you know, these incredibly problematic and challenging waters and do so in a way that is hopefully good for the world, right? And as corny as that might sound, but long story longer, I'm, I'm trying to land in, I think, the same place you're landing. Dude, I, that's amazing. I'll tell you right now, we have 1,500 authors, all of whom like can afford to pay in, you know, basically a new car price for a marketing service, right? So all of them have businesses or are very profitable or whatever. And I would say basically all of them are freaking the fuck out. Right. I mean, shit, I know we are, man. Like I'm excited now, 
But I had my moment of panic and like, Literally, I went to bed. I had a falling dream, man. You know, the falling dream is the classic, iconic, out of control dream, man. And it was like I got into an elevator. It was a real dream. Like I was in a business meeting with somebody and like I got into an elevator and then I felt like it started shaking and I heard the cable break and it started plummeting. And I'm like, I like I I freaked out. And then I'm like, accepted in my dream. All right, I'm going to die. Like, okay, I I guess I I prefer not to. But uh, I guess I had a good run. I hope my family is going to be okay. but I'm going to die. And then like just waited to hit the ground and then woke up. And man, I had torn the sheets off my half of the bed. Like it was so terrifying to me, right? Wow. I know, dude. Amazing. <laughs> like it was nuts. Wh- that was only like when three was nights this? ago. This is like two, three Couple nights ago. ago. Yes. It was. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It's Monday, Sunday. It was Saturday night. Yeah, it was. It was Saturday night. Yeah. And um, and so like uh I woke up and then like, thank God I've been doing plant medicine. I've been doing therapeutic work and I really sat with it. I felt my anxiety. I kind of like, you know, where's it coming from? And then I kind of understood it. I kind of felt it and I let it go. And then it was like, oh shit now. Now let's look at the opportunity, right? Anyway, so the, we got a lot of our authors are people like, just like me and like you. But I will tell you the two things they're freaking out the most about. One is operations, right? Finance, like all that, how do I, you know, do remote, P&L. My CEO is a baller at that. So he's actually started reaching out to our authors and we're, he's going to start individually coaching some of them. But the other thing they're freaking out about is what the hell do I do to get the word out, right? And a lot of them are coming from scarcity mindset, dude. Like, like my team, a lot of my team is like, okay, we'll just drop prices and we'll tell them they have to sign now. And it's like, no, stop. We're not doing any of that. That's terrible. We're going to do the opposite. And so like you, uh, who like CMO, big company experience, abundant mindset, you have immense amount of shit to give to people like, and you could just sit on your podcast and talk and like, dude, I bet you would be amazing, man. No, that's what we're doing. I've already been contacted by uh, one of the top venture firms in Silicon Valley. They want to do a webinar on uh, crisis marketing. I've been reaching out to all all sorts of friends of mine saying, hey, listen, if I can be of service, if you want to do anything, if you, you know, other venture capitalists I know, if you guys want to do, you know, private Zoom calls, uh, some of the entrepreneur groups that I've uh, dealt with in one way or another in the past, been reaching out to them saying anything I can do. And look, in my case, I don't want anything for it. As a matter of fact, taking anything for it would be, I don't even know what word to use, Tucker. I, I, I just, I'm in a position, I, maybe I can help. And all I'm trying to think, all I'm trying to think about is how can I help, period. Yeah. So I, I love what you're doing. And look, you got a business to run too. And so if if by giving away some meaningful percentage of your IP in this approach that uh, that Eddie and I call radical transparency means you help some people in the short term, that's cool. If it endears them to you and your company and your category and ultimately your brand and your service and you get some new business of it, that's cool too. It's okay to do well by doing good, right? That's that, to your point. That's very fucking different than the Purell asshole, right? Very different. One is an entrepreneur saying, how do I do radical transparency to hopefully help? And and yes, it will be good for my business in the long term, I hope. Those two things can coexist very fucking nicely. Preach to the choir, brother. hundred <laughs> percent. Yep. <laughs> And then, uh, so what are you doing? I want to know maybe more on the personal side. So, uh, what are you doing hunkering down with the Rugrats? You got the PS4. Um, what are you and your gal doing with your kids around the house? 
Not much, man. Um, uh, like we are uh, basically like today's kind of like we're going to let them dick around and play PS4 and be on you know, YouTube. And like, like I said, like they're going to you know find loose change, I'm sure. And then ask me who did 9-11. But then once we get through a day or two of that, we, we got a, a plan. We're, we're basically going to create like the, the Max family homeschool. Right. And so we're going to, you know, like, but it'll be like, it's going to be self-directed learning. Like it's going to be Montessori. Our kids go to Waldorf. So it's going to be Waldorf style. And so it's like, okay, like we're going to you know, go on two walks at least a day, maybe three. And then in between walks, like is there's art, there's crafts, there's, I'm probably going to let them watch YouTube, but then like th- they're going to have to like draw a picture of what they learned or write a report about it. I mean, they're a little too young for writing. So it'll be more drawing pictures or kind of tell us what they've learned about stuff, which my son loves, man. He, there's this show dangerous animals on Netflix that he is obsessed with. And then like, he'll watch it and he's like, oh, <laughs> I love daddy. shows like that. Oh dude, he loves it. Let me tell I you. I love shows like hand. that. Remember when animals, when animals attack, that was oh, yeah. one of the early ones of those. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he, uh, like he loves it, man. And so like, like we're going to do stuff like that and just come up with a normal schedule. And then thank God my mother-in-law lives here. And so like, she just is be, she's just here now. So it's me, my wife and my mother-in-law and our three kids. And it's going to be like old times, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to get, we're going to get um, back in the day. We're going to back in the day, everything. <laughs> yep. Now I also wanted to ask you about if I could steal a few more minutes there's a lot of discussion, even at this stage of the game, that as a result of this virus, um, we're going to see huge uh, cultural and societal uh, and business shifts. And, you know, three that immediately pop to my mind are, um, you know, there's uh, this massive expedition being done or expediting being done of um, telemedicine and digital medicine and uh, education. You know, my buddy, Eric Yuan, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, the founder of Zoom, his company gave Zoom away to all the schools in America. Right. And then the other thing I wonder about is, is sort of, you know, office work in general um, and, and maybe even retail in general, you know, the sort of environments where a bunch of people come together to do stuff on a regular basis. So I guess I know it's early to tell, but you're, you know. You're a smart guy. I'm sure you've been thinking about some of these things. Do you have any sense, Tucker, of some of the longer term impacts on kind of the way we work and the way we live? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I've got friends who are much smarter than I am and much more uh, visionary. Right. And so um, for, like just I'll just go like pop right popping off the top of my head. I am really happy I'm not in commercial real estate. Because I think what's going to happen over the next two weeks is everyone's going to realize how bullshit offices are and how much more work they get done at home or how much they like working at home more. And I think long term, you, I think we've just seen the top and there's going to be a long term secular decline in commercial real estate. And I think a big one. Right. Um, so that's number So you one. wouldn't want to own office buildings right now. No, I would not. <laughs> that would be real bad. And so um, also uh, in line with that, I think we're going to see a big realization how much bullshit work is being done at companies and how much of this stuff doesn't matter at all. I think we're going to see, we've already seen in a certain sector, a huge self-reliance and entrepreneurship push. I think that's about to go mainstream. Like that really has been relegated to a small group of people. 
Now I think it's going to get big and it's going to get big fast, which I think is part of a bigger trend is I think the pendulum is going to start swinging back to localism. And I mean that on all levels, right? I mean, like, are you, where are you getting your food? Who are you interacting with? Uh, how are you setting up your life? Like, we're going to start seeing a lot of that, right? But that means like, like, this is the antithesis of the 20th century in a lot of ways, right? The other, the other way the pendulum is going to swing is back to connected. I think we have such a disengaged, disconnected society that weirdly what we're going to see is local decision-making, but international connections, right? The global economy and like that sort of shit is far, far more about, like, I like a big economy. I like having cool stuff. I like Target and Whole Foods. And I'm, I'm a fan of that. But at the same time, what matters more is who do you spend your actual time with, right? In, in, in person. But then also, how do you find other people like you around the world? They're two very different types of problems. I don't think either one has really, modernity has not solved either one. And I think we're going to start seeing a ton of people start to think very seriously and clearly about how do we build communities for people instead of bullshit exurbs and suburbs and all these awful commercial buildings and whatever. And how to create platforms where people connect with each other. Because what we have, social media is for the most part a broadcast platform. It is not a connection platform. And I think we're going to see some amazing stuff built. I think we're going to see two weeks of serious pain, two months of mild pain after that. And then I think what we're going to get into, at least in America, is the dawn of a new golden age in certain ways. I think, I, I think the economic crisis is going to hit Europe first. They're fucked. They're totally fucked. Then it's going to go to Asia. Then it's going to come to us. The sovereign debt crisis, that's just inevitable. Everyone who knows any, like all my hedge fund people, they're all like, yeah, we, we know this is coming. How it's going to play out, when and whatever is a different question. But the sovereign debt crisis is fucking coming. And there's nothing anyone can do about that, right? Um, but so like the question really becomes for humanity over the next 10 years is how do we respond? And if we respond by pulling a lot of, not being insular, like tribal in the sense that fuck everyone who doesn't look like me. I mean, like if we respond by making uh, uh, most energy inputs local, food, things like that, um, uh, but then connecting uh, interpersonally around the world with people like us, I think we have the opportunity to, to come to a new golden age, right? And, and the, the, the parallel is, I think, the, really, the real parallel is World War I, Spanish flu, roaring 20s right? It's not a direct parallel, but because a big part of the roaring twenties, the reason they are roaring is because of prohibition and whatever. But like, uh, I think that's the parallel, right? Is that we'll see if it happens or if it doesn't, right? There's a lot of differences. Um, but I'm actually on net really optimistic about like, I'm not super happy that Mm. probably a few million people are going to die worldwide over the next couple of years because of this. But, um, Sometimes it takes pain to grow, man. And we were, as a world, I think, as a culture, humans were somewhat stagnant. The, if you think about it, man, nothing is fucking different in our lives from the 80s outside of the internet and the tech sector. Nothing else is different. 
You mean in terms of our day-to-day -day lives or on what dimension? No, I, I mean, in our day-to-day -day lives, if you take the internet out and the tech around the internet, what's really that different about our lives from the 80s? Well, in terms of our day-to-day -day living, you know, the one that jumps to my mind, of course, which is not day-to-day -day living is healthcare, right? But in yeah, terms way, of, hey, we still get up every morning. Worse. It's way worse. <laughs> Like, no, but hold on. If you're taking well, tech out, it, hold on. If it, you're it taking tech out, most of the most, first off, li li life expectancy has actually declined uh, recently, and most uh, quality of care has definitely declined since the '80s. Uh, like the most measures of healthcare. Now you're talking about extreme things of like what are things we can cure and solve? Maybe, maybe not. That I, in the medical space, it is a, an intense debate whether healthcare is getting better or worse. It's an intense debate. Uh, and the things that you're talking about, most of them are tech driven, not service level, not actual healthcare driven, definitely not structural driven. Yeah, tech driven. There are new procedures and there are new approaches and there are new ways to solve problems with the heart and problems with the liver and, you know, on and on and That's on. Tech driven. That didn't exist. That's all that didn't. It's all technology driven. It's all tech driven. All, all tech. Most. Yeah. Most all. A lot of it. Yeah. And so uh, what's your meta point here, handsome? <laughs> the, the, the meta point to me is I think the way forward for humans is always self-reliance. And I don't mean living off the grid. I don't mean Unabomber. I mean, my job is to handle my life and to help the people I love and contribute what I can to the world. And not to just be a cog in a massive global, global machine that's designed for the elites. Yes. There's a phrase we never hear anymore uh, or a word that you don't hear very often, and that's citizen. Go out and, and citizenry, right? Go out and be a good citizen. It's not a concept you hear about anymore, really. And you said something earlier that I wanted to circle back on, Tucker. You, you used connect and community sort of at the beginning of that riff you just did. And in my, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I think you'll tell me I, I've never, you're in Austin, right? I've never lived there, but I've been there, of course. Santa Cruz is very much, to me, feels like a community. Austin does too, you'll tell me. Um, but to the point where um, in our na little neighborhood, sort of a couple, couple block radius neighborhood, um, I don't even know who started it, but somebody got an email list together years and years ago. And um, everybody's on the list. And if so, a new person moves to the neighborhood, they get on the list quickly. And it's everything from, hey, we're organizing a 4th of July party to there's somebody's doing a bake sale to you, whatever the fuck it is. Right. And it's not overly clogging in your inbox. It, you, but when something's up, we get a note. And anyway, as this thing has been playing out, the emails have all been. Is there anybody that needs me to go to the grocery store? Does anybody need help cleaning their house? Does anybody, is anybody feeling lonely? Whatever there's, and there's all these people on the email list, just sort of organically in the neighborhood, raising their hand and said, I'm willing to help with this, that, or the other. And to sit here and watch that happen in, in my little neighborhood, the only experience that I've had in recent part of my life that would be akin to this was, of course, uh, post 9-11. But I'm, I'm curious what's going on in your life in that regard. And is this what you're talking about when you say connecting community? 100%. It's 100% what I mean. I think the, there was a lot of great things about the 20th century. 
Two of the really bad things were the mass death, right? That was not so good. And um, the disconnection. Like, I love capitalism and open markets. I hate industrial, corporatist, consumerist uh, ideology. I hate it. Because I the only reason business exists is to meet the needs of humans. Like, it's like, like HR. Fuck you. Humans are not a resource. Humans are the point, right? And so I think... We finally, as a species, have gotten tired of this. We are tired of being cogs in the wheel. And I think the iconic Steve Jobs, you know, Apple 1984 ad, I think we are finally starting on an individual community level, starting to wake up. And coronavirus, I see it as a wake-up call and a potential rallying cry. And not like, it's, I don't think there's going to be a big movement. It's just going to be like, people are going to realize, oh, wait a minute. Why did we give all this power to it? Look at the federal government right now. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat. What you, You've got to be looking at them and realize that they are just a bunch of monkeys play acting, that they are performers, that they are not actually people doing shit. When you look at America, who are the ones shutting shit down? It led from the NBA, a, a private group. Now, I'm not saying get away, uh, get get rid of government, no, no nonsense like that. But like it was entrepreneurs and people with skin in the game who first actually said, hey, we have got to do something here, right? And people are starting to wake up and take responsibility for themselves. I think a two-week lockdown would be – or effective lockdown would be so amazing because so many people would realize how fucked up their lives are and they would start realizing that is the first step to change is realizing – my life is not the way I want it to be. And most people, there's a reason zombie movies were so big for a decade. Because most people were fucking zombies. And I think this is going to wake a lot of people up. And I'm excited for that. So you think as a result of this virus and everything surrounding it, that we'll have a breakthrough in personal growth and self-actualization uh, globally? Here? Is that what you're saying, Tucker? So yes and no. It's not like a kumbaya moment or anything like that. I think right now, that sort of stuff has been limited to a small group of people. Think of it like a massive field of sheep. And there were like a, two shepherds. But then wolves came and picked off a bunch. And some of the a bunch of the sheep realized, hey, you know what? I'm tired of being a sheep. I'm going to go be a shepherd now. And so not all of them will. Some sheep are just going to be sheep. But I think there are a bunch of sheep right now that are going to realize in the next two weeks that being a sheep isn't working for them anymore. And they're either going to be a sheepdog or a shepherd. And some will probably become wolves, like the asshole we were talking about who fucking uh, bought up all the Purell, right? All the Purell. Right. Some will try to be wolves. That's fine. But that's why we have shepherd and sheepdogs. I think more of us are going to become that. And more of us are going to take that. We're going to realize I don't have to be a sheep anymore. Because no sheep has to be a sheep. And I mean this metaphorically, obviously, <laughs> but none of them do. Every human, dude, listen, Buddha said it. What you, what you need for enlightenment you, you, is already in you. Jesus said it. The kingdom of heaven is within. Every great sage and avatar has said the exact same thing. And it all boils down to everything you need in your life, you have inside of you. I think people are going to start, some people are going to start to figure that out. And I'm hoping we reach a tipping point to where enough people have figured out that it becomes a driving force. 
Yes. And, you know, you see the, um, the images on the internet and TV of the Italians hanging out their windows and singing songs and playing guitar and making music and, and the Spaniards cheering on health workers from, from, from their apartments and, and so forth. And, you know, I've read in multiple places that the average American doesn't know their neighbors. And I think that's a big problem in our world. And I'm part of why I live where I live is the sense of community that's here. And I know all my neighbors and I hope there is a increasing uh, amount of that post 9-11 feeling that we are all in this together. When something like this happens, we all have to stand up and support each other best we can. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe taking a multi-week, potentially multi-month, who knows, we'll see how long this thing plays out, but, but pause will cause people to think more about their own lives and, and their communities and, and, and so forth. I think so. I hope so. We'll see. I mean, God knows I've been wrong about a lot of things, <laughs> but I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I can already <laughs> see it on my company, man. Like, so it, like, we have 50, 50, 51 full time and um, Friday afternoon, the CEO posted, Hey, look, like every, everyone, you know, uh, we're, we're, what, no matter what happens, we're going to go through some pain right? Even if we make it out great, we're going through pain. And so he said, I would love to hear ideas from people on three things. How do we cut costs without firing anybody? How do we uh, offer more products and services to sell um, in ways that make sense? How can we um, do something to weather this storm better? And he's like, I want a post from everybody. I don't care, you know, lowest to highest, oldest to newest, youngest, whatever. And it was this amazing thing, man. It was like 50 people coming together over the weekend, ideas, interaction. It was, and all these people who came from corporate America are like, this is amazing. All my friends at my old, at Zappos, uh, who's supposed to have a great culture and all my old companies are petrified. They're terrified. There's been no communication from their higher ups. They don't know what's going on. They're more to like, they're afraid. And I'm like, invi- they're like, they don't understand why I'm invigorated or excited. It's because like, well, we're treating people like people and we're connecting with them instead of like top down bullshit, corporatist hierarchy. It's fantastic. And I, I love the email. It's a great idea. I hope I hope more companies are doing uh, things along those lines. Thank you. It's great hanging out with you. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Excellent. Buddy. Stay legendary, my friend. It's fun as always. Well, there he is, the incomparable Tucker Max. I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tucker as much as I did. And if you know somebody who might enjoy uh, hearing this, why not share this episode with them right now? Uh, Make no mistake, we deeply, deeply appreciate your shares and your uh, tweets and your social media shout outs and all of those things. Thank you so much. All right. We would like to thank one of the most influential men in America, according to Time Magazine, Tucker Max. You can check him out on the Internet at TuckerMax.com. OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check it out. The number one LifeFullyLived.org. Uh, if you are in marketing, why not check out my uh, marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. We recently put out an episode on marketing leadership in tough times. Um, we're gonna re- we're gonna talk about this a bunch. So if you're in marketing, Lockhead on Marketing, another uh, podcast I love, one of my favorites, Grumpy Old Geeks, 
with Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister. Pick it up wherever you listen to legendary oddcasts. That's Grumpy Old Geeks. Why not leverage the power of a virtual assistant to get more done? And hey, virtual assistants, by definition, you're uh, social distancing when you have a virtual assistant. <laughs> Visit my friends at bottleneck.online today. That's bottleneck.online for the power of a virtual assistant. And if you are um, a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on some of the top podcasts on the planet, check out my friends at interviewvalet.com, interviewvalet.com. And if you're in Silicon Valley and you want to have a legendary B2B website, my friends at Atranet have been doing that for over 20 years. Visit atre.net. And my friends at Spiro, uh, will help you close more business. And in times like these, closing more business is a great idea. Visit spiro.ai today, spiro.ai. And uh, if you can, why not consider making a donation to a local church or a hospital that's helping out with this virus? All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And um, we would appreciate you sharing podcasts not uh, viruses. Um, as I mentioned, we're produced by the legendary Jason DeFilippo, Sarah Knox, and Jamie Jadu. Uh, technical execution and build lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Um, uh, listen to Leonard Cohen, only by pasture raised, free range eggs. Member chickens are people too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? So that's it. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay legendary, and of course, follow your different.